0: Well, hi, everyone. Good morning. It's so good to be with all of you. Hey, I want to I show you something. After the 8.30 service, I was out at the Welcome Center, and this teenage girl, she handed me this. Is that a great, right? I love that. I was so tickled to receive that. I just had to share it with you guys. Well, anyway, uh, so last weekend we took a break from our Mark series due to Student Weekend, and J. Matt, our student ministry pastor, he did a great job reminding us through the story of Jonah of God's love for us. And he also reminded us as adults how we need to be truth-tellers in the lives of of our students, and it's always great to highlight what's cooking over in in TSM, our student ministries, as well as in Timber Kids, also. And. Uh Student weekend, it kind of signifies to me the start of the fall season because probably by now most, if not all, of our kids are back in school, which means that we all got to get back into the fall rhythm, right? So today we're going to jump back into our our Mark series and we will pick up in chapter 9, verse 30, where God's word says, they left that place and passed through Galilee Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. The passage said they left that place. And for those of you who might be just jumping in here for the first time, you might be hearing this and going, well, what, what place was that? Where were they? Well, earlier in chapter nine, we read that Jesus had gone up on a high mountain where he was transfigured. And this was a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, in the life of his followers, and this moment, It serves as a reminder for all of us to go back to the very first verse in the Gospel of Mark, where Mark provides the reason for his Gospel when he writes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, Jesus being transfigured, he sort of pulled back the veil to offer a glimpse of his divinity, providing further evidence That He was the Messiah, the Son of God. You might also remember that Moses and Elijah were present as well at the transfiguration. And, And they weren't there because they didn't want to miss out on a cool event. The reason they were there is that Moses represented the law. Well, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And Elijah was present as sort of the chief prophet among prophets. And Jesus represents the fulfillment of prophecy. So transfiguration, this was a really, really big deal. And now Jesus and his buddies, they come down the mountain and they're headed towards Jerusalem. And what we see here in Mark chapter 9 verse 30 is this sort of a snapshot of a private moment that Jesus has with the 12. And it's in this moment that he predicts his death. And this is actually the second time in Mark that Jesus predicted his death. Back in chapter 8, he told them, hey boys, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of evil men and I'm going to die. And then again here in chapter 9. Jesus is telling them he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed. But Jesus offers some hope here in that he reminds them he will rise again after three days. And he'll go on to tell them about his death again uh, in chapter 10. And he does this periodically with the 12 because they simply do not understand. These guys don't get it because in their minds, any messiah worth the salt was not going to die. I mean, that's the last thing that a messiah would do. Remember, the Hebrew people had been looking for this messiah for centuries. He was the one who was going to overpower the oppressive Romans. He was the one who was going to usher in a new kingdom and establish his rule on earth. And guess who was going to rule with him? They were, the 12. So these guys, they're totally stoked about that. And well, you know, Jesus dying, that just doesn't compute in how all of this was gonna play out in their minds. Which sets up the next part of the passage, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest among them. Now, those of us with kids, we know that if you go on any kind of a road trip, there are certain things that you can count on happening. You're gonna have lots of bathroom breaks, you need to buy piles of snacks, and in the back seat are always kids arguing, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Isn't this just the craziest scene? I mean, here we are again in this very tender scene where Jesus was being transparent and vulnerable. He's pouring out his heart and he's reminding them that he was going to die. And here are these guys arguing about who was the greatest among them. I mean, why would they be arguing over such pettiness? in light of what Jesus had just shared with them. Now, to be fair, and we all know this, anytime you get a group of men together, there's bound to be a certain amount of chest beating, right? And throughout history, a favorite topic of discussion has been trying to determine who was the greatest in any particular field who was the greatest singer, baseball player, basketball player, football team, quarterback. I mean, on and on it goes, right? Those of us who were old enough to remember Muhammad Ali, he would often remind us who the greatest was as he proudly proclaimed that he was the greatest. And here are the 12 arguing about who is the greatest among them. I mean, talk about a self-centered topic, right? What was lost on all of these guys is that Jesus didn't pick any of them because they were great. In fact, he picked them because of their normalcy. These were just 12 average guys who didn't stick out in any crowd. You might remember about 20 years or so ago, one of the first reality shows that came out on TV was a show called Average Joe. Anybody remember Average Joe? On every episode, there were about a dozen guys or so who were, uh, again, they were just average regular guys who were vying for the attention of a beautiful bachelorette. And every episode, they would walk through different games and whatnot to get this gal's attention. And my wife and I, one night, were watching an episode when she, out of the blue, she said out loud, these guys aren't average. And then turning to me, she said, you're average. (laughs) So rude, right? And now here we are, 26 years of marriage. Anyway, I digress. Back to the 12 disciples. At least four of these guys were fishermen who Jesus picked from among thousands of fishermen. And we all know that Matthew, he was a tax collector among many tax collectors. There was nothing great about any of these guys. They only became great because of the work Jesus did through them, And it's the same with you and me. If you're following along in the outline, the first point to jot down, God does great work through us. God does great work through us. I mean, any work that God does through us, either great or small, is only because of the grace God bestows upon each and every one of us every day. And it's interesting their response, isn't it? When Jesus asked them what they were arguing about, their response was silence. Why were they silent? Because they'd been found out. They knew the topic they were arguing about would not be met with approval from Jesus. And because of that, they were probably experiencing a certain amount of shame about what they were discussing. I mean, especially in light, again, of what Jesus had just shared about his impending death. So, since the 12 are so concerned about greatness, Jesus is like, okay, you want to talk about greatness? Let me show you the path to greatness. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You notice here that Jesus did not chastise them for what they were arguing about because Jesus was going to do great things through the 12. But what they were arguing about was personal greatness. Uh, Who was the best among them? It was classic one-upmanship. And now Jesus is challenging them to a new way of thinking. See, in Jewish tradition, a a rabbi would read scripture from a standing position, and then he would sit down to teach. So Jesus sitting here, it means that what he's about to share with them is really, really important. And what he wants to share with them is yet another example of Jesus turning conventional wisdom on its head, because he's talking about being last. And serving others. The second point true greatness means putting others first. I mean, this statement of Jesus is about as countercultural as you can get. Because at the time, some, not all, but some of the leading religious rulers of the day modeled being served and modeled behavior that said, look at me. Some of them would pray out loud. When they gave their tithe, they did so in such a way to ensure that people saw them when they were giving. When they were fasting, they made spectacles out of themselves by putting ashes on their heads. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks to all of this by saying, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. So Jesus, in this moment, he's telling his followers, don't be like the Pharisees who desire attention and who were filled with pride. And pride was as much a problem then as it is today. The early desert fathers They established what has come to be known as the seven deadly sins. And we know them as greed, wrath, lust, envy, gluttony, and sloth. But they believed the worst of them all was pride. Author C.S. Lewis, he agrees with this by adding, Pride is the one vice of which no man in the world is free. He calls pride the position in which the ego and the self are directly opposed to God. And he says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride was the sin of the original rebel, Lucifer, who thought two things that are always at the root of pride. The first is, pride says, I know better. And the second thing, pride says, I know what will make me happy. I know better, and I know what will make me happy. And we see both of these viewpoints on full display in Satan's downfall in Isaiah chapter 14, where it reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I Will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. There's a lot of eyes in that passage, isn't there? And that's the problem with pride is that it's always me-centered, it's always self-centered, because the ultimate goal of pride is to establish and ensure my well-being above everything and everyone else. It's the inappropriate lifting of ourselves above others, and it's completely contrary to what Paul writes to the Church of Philippi, where he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. (laughs) Wouldn't it be refreshing refreshing if today we saw this modeled by celebrities and politicians and other public figures? It's pride that's at the root of our individual-driven culture here in America, where everybody is screaming, like the Pharisees, Look at me. Look at me. So, you know, whenever a a preacher is preaching on a topic, he or she has to become a student first. And as I was preparing for this message, I was wondering and asking the question of myself, how prideful am I? How prideful is Donnie Abbott? And how does one know exactly where they're at on the pride scale? So I do a search online for some pride tests and assessments. And I come across Pastor Alan Parr and his website, who put together a series of yes and no questions to see where one is at on the pride scale. So we're going to have a little fun this morning. We are all going to take the pride tests together. Come on, it's going to be fun. Okay, I'm going to put a series of questions up on the screens, and they're just simple yes or no, yes or no answers. And uh, if you really want to spice things up this morning, you can answer for your friend or for your spouse. How does that sound? Now, we'll provide counseling after service, Okay. Okay, first question. Here it is. Do you assume you already know something when someone is teaching? There was a gal last night in the second row right over here. After after I read that question, she cried out, oh, Lord, that is me. (laughs) (laughs) Second question. Do you see yourself as too good to perform certain tasks? Third one, this is for you guys. Are you too proud to ask for help? (laughs) Fourth, do you feel the need to consistently teach people things? Number five, when in a conversation, do you find yourself talking about yourself a lot? We all know people like that, don't we? We need to be mindful of how often, how much we talk about ourselves. Number six, do you have a constant need for attention and affirmation? This is one I really struggle with because my love language is words of affirmation. Number seven, are you critical of others? No matter how good of a job they do, you're the one who can always point out something they could have done better. How about this one? Are you unable to receive criticism? Now, I can receive criticism, but it's all in how you want to criticize me, how you present it, right? What is your tone? What is your body language? Number nine, are you unwilling to submit to authority? That seems to be a big one in our culture. And then the last one, do you justify your sin instead of admitting it? Now, we had a little fun with those questions, but those are some pretty convicting questions, aren't they? And if you answered yes to more than just a couple of them, well, perhaps it's something for you to pay attention to. And the truth is, is that this kind of exercise should cause us all to pause and do a little introspective work in our own lives. And I encourage you to do that in the week ahead. So now that we're all depressed because the pastors revealed how prideful we all are, what's the hope? Right? There's got to be some hope in all of this. (laughs) What is the hope? How does one become less prideful and more humble? I mean, I think that's something that we all desire, right? But humility, it seems to be a rare trait these days, doesn't it? But it should be a character trait of every Christ follower. One definition of humility is to have a modest or low view of one's own importance. I like what the recently deceased pastor uh, Timothy Keller says about humility. He says, humility is so shy that if you begin talking about it, it leaves. I like that. But what exactly does a person of humility even look like? Well, going back to our passage... Jesus grabs a kid. Verse 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. See, in our culture today, A child represents innocence and purity and all the things that are good and right in the world. But in the first century, a child was viewed much differently. In the first century, a child was viewed as someone who had potential usefulness. When a child arrived at a certain age, then he or she would be useful. But until that age... A child didn't have much value and worth because they were viewed as unfinished human beings. So with that as the mindset of a first century person in this Mark passage, Jesus is not saying be like a child, but instead he's saying be the kind of person who welcomes those who in your mind don't have much usefulness. Be of concern toward those who can't benefit you. Serve those who can do the least for you, those like a child. This was a valuable lesson for the 12 because this kid in Jesus' arms, they saw that kid as insignificant. In their eyes in, in that culture, the child would have been last. So, as you hear this, Who are people in your life who you don't have much use for? And I I don't mean that necessarily in in a negative way. It's just that who are people who you just don't really give much thought about? Who are people who you don't have much patience for? Who are people who you avoid every time you see them? Remember, humility is the key ingredient here, right? And it takes humility to engage with those types of people. And just like earlier, when we went through the exercise of figuring out how prideful we are, let me point out some characteristics of a humble person. Humble people are inquisitive. They ask questions and are good listeners. They don't demand attention. They are generous, compassionate, confident. Humble people are always willing to admit their mistakes. And they are thoughtful of others. All of us here this morning have felt the humble thoughtfulness of someone at some point in your life. People who have put their own desires to serve you. I think of my grandma Millie. She's been gone now for 20 years. But she was probably the most selfless, humble person I've ever known. And her humility greatly impacted me. You know, Winnie the Pooh's sidekick, Eeyore. Anytime you can quote Eeyore in a sermon, it's always a good thing. But Eeyore once wisely said, a little consideration, a little thought for others makes all the difference. My grandma Millie was like that, always considering the needs of her three grandsons, always showing kindness toward others. And I'm sure you can think of people in your own life who are like my grandma Millie. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at here. This is why as we read through the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus doing exactly that, being thoughtful toward others. He modeled for all of us what it means to live a life of humility. He was constantly acquainting himself with people in society who were on the margins, people who were neglected, people who were overlooked. We've seen that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus touch and heal a leper. He healed a bleeding woman. He touched and he revived the dead. And he healed numerous people who were demonically afflicted. All of those people were people to be avoided at all costs because they were unclean or they were viewed as less than in their culture. None of those people could do anything for Jesus. They had nothing to give, nothing at all other than their hearts and their praise to him. Humility is the model Jesus provides to you and to me. As we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I hear that, and I, I think, you know, it's fine to be talking about humility and humbleness and everything, but being a servant, really? Man, yet that's a whole different ballgame, right? That's when things get a little iffy. Because in servants in Jesus' day, they were viewed as property. Some were captives from war. Others were purchased from neighboring countries. Still others gave themselves in servitude uh, to pay off a debt owed. However a servant became a servant, guess what their job was? Yeah, their job was to serve others. And Jesus is saying, that's our job also. Because that's what he did. In humility, he came to serve others. And this act of Christ's humility was noted again by Paul in his letter to the Philippians, where he writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a what? A servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Nobody has ever given up so much to be of service to others. And giving up something is always at the heart of serving others, isn't it? Serving others will always come at a cost to ourselves. And this cost can be as simple as a minor inconvenience. It almost always includes giving up our time and sometimes even our money. But as the Dutch priest Henry Nouwen once said, servanthood is not an enterprise in which we try to surround ourselves with as much misery as possible, but a joyful way of life in which our eyes are open to the vision of the true God who chose to be revealed in what? In servanthood. The last point in your outline. In humility, I need to serve others. Because when you and I engage in service to others, it reduces the focus on ourselves and it builds the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of self. And that's why we here as a church We offer so many opportunities to serve others. From our involvement with our foster and adoptive families, Serve 6-8, the Alpha Center. We just finished a a month-long backpack of my own where we lined the stage with over 700 backpacks that you all gave in service to our local foster kids to ensure that these kids start the new year on firm footing. We have local, national, global mission trips that always carry with them a heart and a spirit of serving others. So going back to what the 12 followers of Jesus were arguing about, who was the greatest among them? If you and I want to be truly great, we will practice humility and serve others. We pray with me. Father, we're grateful for our time together this morning amongst family and friends. We're mindful, God, that what we're doing this morning is not something that all followers of yours can do around the world. We're particularly mindful of the tragedy that's unfolded in Pakistan where so many churches have been burned to the ground, where so many Christians have been killed. We pray now, God, that you would please be with our brothers and sisters in Pakistan, that you would encourage them, that you would provide for their needs and remind them that you are a God who desperately loves them. God, we thank you so much for your word as it's holy and it's true. Jesus, we thank you for the example you've given to all of us to practice humble servitude. God, serving others is not easy. Our pride gets in the way. We we admit that we need your help. But today, may today be a day where we will practice humility by serving others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I encourage you all to stand for one final song together, and then I'll come back up and close us out. coming this morning I want to remind you that if you have any prayer needs our prayer team will be right up here at the front and let me tell you these guys they live for this man they love to come alongside whatever it is that you're facing in your life and again just a quick reminder thank you for your generosity in giving well God bless everyone have a great rest of your week and remember let love live